Matthew chapter 8. We are continuing on in the Gospel of Matthew today. Matthew chapter 8. Between uh, 1940 and 1970, the United States government was engaged in some scientific experiments that sound like something out of a comic book uh, called Project Cirrus and Project Storm Fury. Uh, these were actually real attempts to try to control hurricanes. And what they would do is they would take an airplane, load it up with these chemicals. We don't need to get into the chemistry this morning, of course, but these chemicals they would drop into these hurricanes that would bind to the water droplets, lower their temperature, turn them into, slow, into snow, and that would slow down the rotation of the hurricane. Now, they actually tried this several times, and uh, on a couple of attempts, they thought it was successful as the hurricanes that they seeded with this chemical uh, slowed down and turned away from the United States. Uh, but current scientists who know much more about the behavior of hurricanes than we did uh, back then have come to the conclusion that these attempts to control the weather were not actually successful, but these were just the natural behavior of hurricanes from other weather factors. The reality is that as much as human beings want to control the weather, we can't do it. We can't do it. Weather is simply a force outside of our authority. It's outside of our power. Uh, the weather ultimately belongs to God. The psalmist writes in Psalm 135.7, It is God who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. And yet in our text this morning, as we'll see in a moment, we will witness something incredible. A man controls the weather, calming a storm merely with a word. As we enter a new set of Jesus' miracles through chapter 8 and into chapter 9, we'll continue to see the authority of Jesus on display. We've seen his power over disease. We've seen his power over demons. And now we're going to see his power and authority over nature. And as we see this, we will find good reason to trust and revere our Savior. We'll be in Matthew 8, 23 through 27 this morning. Let's read our text. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and sea obey him? This is the word of the Lord. We see three big things in our text this morning. First, we see the disciples fearing the great storm. Next, we see Jesus commanding great calm. And finally, Jesus demanding great fear. Jesus demanding great fear. Let's go back to verse 23 here. The disciples fear the great storm. If you recall last week, Jesus has been on one side of the Sea of Galilee. He performed uh, a number of healing miracles there, and he's now surrounded by a crowd. And as we saw in verse 18 last week, Jesus surrounded by the crowd, tells his disciples it's time to go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. It's time to get out of there. And so now, as we see in verse 23 this morning, they get into the boat and they actually begin the journey. A journey of probably a couple hours, depending on wind speed, things like that. The boat they get into is probably a typical Galilean fishing boat. And they've actually recovered 
a, a wreck in 1986, a boat from this time period was discovered at Galilee. It's been preserved and it actually helps us to know the usual size of fishing boats that they would use. Uh, the one that Jesus probably would have been in that day. It's about 30 feet long, about 8 feet wide, and about 4 feet deep. If you were to go from the door of the sanctuary to the gate on the fence there, it's about that long. So it's not a giant boat, it's not a, a tiny rowboat either. And these boats were often rowed, but they did have a mast that would allow the fishermen to use a sail. Now a boat this size probably couldn't fit more than 13 people comfortably, um, and it's likely that uh, the boat we're reading about this morning, the passengers were Jesus and his disciples, about 13 people. However, we do see in Mark's gospel that there were other boats traveling with them across the sea. They weren't the only boat on the water that day. But as they're crossing the sea, something happens. Matthew brings our attention to something. In verse 24, he says, Behold, that's the red flag that something important is about to occur. And he's going to use this word several more times in this chapter, but he says, Behold, there arose a great storm. There arose a great storm. Now in Nevada, storms can be seen a long way off, right? In fact, it often looks more like there's going to be a storm than there actually is one, right? We see the clouds and nothing happens. We can see them gather for hours before there might be any rain or wind. But this isn't always what happens at the Sea of Galilee. You see, the Sea of Galilee is actually 700 feet below sea level in a valley. And when cold air blows down into that basin and meets the warm air rising from the water, the result can be a sudden and violent storm. In 1992, for example, the Sea of Galilee actually experienced a storm with waves that reached 10 feet high. That's enormous. And accordingly, Matthew describes this storm in verse 24 as great. It's a significant storm. It's no small breeze. It's not just overcast, but it's a serious and dangerous storm. Tempest. In fact, we read in verse 24 that it's, it's such a serious storm that the waves are so high they're actually pouring into the boat. The boat's getting swamped. Mark tells us the high waves are breaking in and filling the boat with water. This is just a simple wooden boat. There's no bilge pumped on a, on a, on a simple fishing boat, right? This is a very dangerous and situ a serious situation. If you've ever been on a canoe or a kayak before, even a little bit of choppiness can be, uh, can be kind of freaky. You can imagine 10-foot waves, even in a larger vessel. That's pretty scary. Pretty scary. There's no life jackets either, right? And so what is Jesus doing, this, uh, doing during this dangerous and sudden storm? What is he doing? Surely he's comforting his disciples. He's saying, it's going to be okay, guys. Don't worry. I've got this. What is he doing? He's sleeping, Matthew tells us. Jesus is asleep. He's taking a nap in the back of the boat. Luke tells us that Jesus actually fell asleep while they were rowing across the lake. You, you almost get this picture of how you know your, your kids or your spouse might fall asleep on a road trip, right? Just kind of lulled off to sleep. That's almost the picture we have of Jesus. He just falls asleep in the boat. Uh, Mark tells us he goes to sleep in the stern in the back of the boat, resting on a cushion or a pillow. He's sleeping. Just think for a minute how this puts Jesus' genuine humanness on display. Jesus is not a robot that just keeps on going and going and going, right? He is not pretending to be human. He's not pretending to sleep. He's genuinely exhausted here. He's tired, right? He's, he's not superhuman. He's divine, but he's not superhuman. His human nature is that. It's human nature. He has all the same 
physical limitations and weaknesses that you and I do in his earthly ministry. We need to sleep. Jesus needs to sleep. And consider what Jesus has been doing, right? What, what was he doing before they got in the boat? He probably was up all night doing these healings. He started in the, in the evening after the Sabbath was over. He probably went to the early hours of the morning. He's been teaching before that, the entire Sermon on the Mount. He's tired, understandably so, right? I know probably a number of you can relate to Jesus here after the wedding yesterday, right? Feeling kind of tired. As Hebrews 4.15 says, Jesus is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. He can relate to the physical limitations of our human bodies because he has them too. But it is still a little bit shocking, isn't it, that Jesus would be able to sleep at a time like this. After all, there's a real and present danger. Why isn't Jesus doing anything? And that's actually the question that his disciples have for him too as they watch these waves come into the boat over the front, over the back, over the sides as the water level's getting higher and higher, their ankles, maybe their knees, they're scared. They're panicking. And we have to remember something too, right? Probably a third of the people in this boat had been fishermen their entire life. They're no strangers to boats. They're no strangers to being on the water. They are experienced fishermen. For them to be this scared really tells us something about this storm, doesn't it? It must be pretty bad. And there's nothing they can do about it either. They can't control the weather. They can't bail water out of the boat faster than it's coming in. They're helpless. They're sinking. And so the only thing that they can do is what we see in the text. They go and they wake up Jesus and they say to him, Lord, save us. We are perishing. Save us, Lord. We're headed for destruction. Uh, Mark actually records the disciples asking Jesus, do you not care that we're perishing? Jesus, what are you doing? Don't you care about what's happening out here? The disciples really think they're going to die. They're convinced that this voyage is doomed and they're going down. But at the same time, we can't ignore the fact that they do seem to think Jesus can do something to help them. It's interesting, right? Because none of the gospel writers record the disciples saying any prayers to God, per se, but they appeal to Jesus here. And maybe they think that Jesus can offer prayers that are extra good on, on their behalf, right? That maybe God will listen more to Jesus than to them, that Jesus has some special appeal he can make to God to save them. But regardless, there is something they perceive in Jesus that sets him apart from them. They clearly recognize Jesus is on a different level. They've seen him work some miracles already. So they do the only thing they can. They ask Jesus to save them. Not only do they call him Lord, which is the title that those who believe in Jesus use in Matthew's gospel, but they beg him to help them, to save them. As one commentator points out, this is fascinating, right? These fishermen are calling on a carpenter to save them. It's amazing that you and I come to this text understanding, uh, probably, right, depending on, on where you're at, but understanding that Jesus is God in the flesh. We're coming to the text with that presupposition as Christians. I'm not sure that the disciples were cognizant of Jesus' deity at this point. Right? I'm inclined to think they probably have not connected those dots yet. But it does seem that their genuine faith is perhaps aware of this, maybe on a subconscious level, right? Weak faith. 
but faith nonetheless that's, in work, that's at work in them and that leads them to cry out to Jesus. There's a little bit of faith going on here, but we really see a mixture, don't we, of fear and faith. There's both of these things at work in the disciples. There's fear that the storm will destroy them, and there's faith that Jesus can help them somehow. They got both these things going on. And this mixture of fear and faith is actually pretty common in God's people. It's pretty relatable, right? You may have never experienced this kind of terror on a boat before, but can you relate to the fear and panic that the disciples are experiencing maybe in a particular situation of life? I think we all can, right? How are we going to fix this problem? How am I going to deal with this? How are we going to get this paid off? Whatever it might be. Can you relate to that feeling where you're caught between overwhelming anxiety and trying to trust God? We've all been there, right? We've all faced problems that seem too big for us to handle. And we find ourselves with one eye on the problem and one eye on the Lord, and we're tugged back and forth between worrying about the problem and, and, and trusting God with it. I think most of us would have responded just like the disciples do, right? A mix of fear and faith. But just like the frightening circumstances that we might face in life, this storm is a perfect opportunity to see the power of Christ at work. What we'll see is that the answer to the disciples' fear over the great storm, it's not just greater faith, but it's actually a greater fear that leads to greater faith. Look down to our second point. Jesus commands great peace in verse 26. We continue in our, our text. The disciples go to Christ, they go to the back of the boat, they're yelling, they're waking him up, they're probably shaking him, Jesus, Jesus, don't you care about what's going on? They're begging him to save them. And Jesus, who's probably soaked at this point, wakes up, he hears his disciples yelling and screaming and panicking. And the first thing that Jesus does is not calm the storm. It's not the first thing he does here. He's still there on the pillow. As his disciples wake him up, he's probably still lying in the same position he's been resting in. Matthew tells us he doesn't actually get up until after he talks to his disciples here. So he's resting there on the pillow, looking at them, getting ready to speak. Um, if you have kids, you ever been woken up from a very deep sleep and you kind of just stare at your kid for a second, right? You're just like, you're just doing that before you even start talking to them. I can't help but wonder if maybe that's kind of how Jesus looked at the disciples that moment, you know, as, as they've woken him up from this rest, just staring at them for a second, still lying down, before he says to them, why are you afraid, oh, you of little faith? The first thing that Jesus does is not calm the storm, but speak to his disciples. Uh, Spurgeon comments, he says, he spoke to the men first, for they were the most difficult to deal with. Wind and sea could be rebuked afterwards. Uh, and indeed, the weakness and sinfulness of our hearts causes us to be a bit more unruly before the Lord than even the wildest weather. The weather doesn't disobey, but we do sometimes. Jesus says two things to his disciples. Two things. The first is, why are you afraid? Why are you afraid? It almost seems like a, a rhetorical question, doesn't it? Like, are you serious, Jesus? Look around us. Let's go. We've got these waves in the boat. Look at this storm. This is a legitimate danger. It's not like the disciples are, are um, you know, freaked out about a little ant that's going across the counter or something like that. No offense if you have ant phobias, but this is a real serious danger. It's a legitimate thing. 
Jesus doesn't say their fear is illegitimate either. But Mark records Jesus' question with a little bit more detail. Jesus in Mark's gospel says, why are you so afraid? Why are you so afraid? It wasn't wrong and it wasn't sinful to be afraid of the storm. After all, this is a genuinely serious and dangerous situation. If you encountered a grizzly bear in the woods, it wouldn't be sinful to be afraid of the grizzly bear, right? That's a real danger. The problem, though, was that the disciples uh, had too much fear. It wasn't the presence of fear. It was the degree to which they were afraid. Their fear was controlling them. It was controlling them. It was clouding their thoughts. It was hindering their faith. Calvin writes, Thus we see that fear which awakens faith is not in and itself faulty till it goes beyond bounds. Its excess lies in disturbing or weakening the composure of faith. Fear itself is not the problem. As we'll see soon, there's actually a good and godly fear that strengthens our faith. But the disciples have a fear that has gone beyond normal bounds. It's dominating and controlling. And fear to that degree is unwarranted. Here's what I mean. The reasons not to be afraid in this situation the disciples face are greater than the reasons to be afraid. Yes, there's a genuine storm, but who's in the boat with them? Who's in the boat with them, right? Yes, you may be dealing with a situation that is difficult and scary, but who is with you? And what Jesus says next underscores the root of their extreme fear. He says, oh, you of little faith. That's how he describes the disciples. He doesn't say they have no faith. He doesn't say they're faithless, but rather that their faith is small. It's weak. But it's there. He uses the same term back in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6.30 when he says, But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive, tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Just as the anxieties about God's provision can overpower and squash a person's faith, so the fear of the storm had squashed the faith of the disciples. It was faith, after all, that had led them to cry out to Jesus. But it wasn't faith that had led them to be terrified about the boat capsizing. And Jesus, is, he's, he's kind of gently rebuking them a little bit here, right? He's kind of rebuking them in a very kind and gentle way. Uh, this isn't a commendation. He's not saying, good job, you guys have little faith, right? There's a deficiency here. There's a weakness here. We're not talking about justification by faith alone. That's not the kind of faith we're referring to here. We're talking about the general trust in God and his care for us, right? The general entrusting of ourselves into God's hands. This is the area where the disciples have weak and little faith. Do they not trust that Jesus will take care of them? Do they doubt that he can take care of them? Do they doubt that he will? Maybe all the above. We don't, we don't know. But at the root of their weak faith is the fact that they fear the storm more than anything else right now. Right? They fear the storm more than absolutely anything else. To them, the power of the storm is greater than the power of the Savior. Maybe you're going through a storm of sorts yourself, right? figuratively speaking. If you're not now, you certainly will later. And the question that you have to ask as you face that, right, as you feel that fear start to rise up in your chest and cloud your thoughts is, is, is this storm greater than the power of my Savior? Certainly not. And to demonstrate this, Jesus is so kind to us, isn't he? He's so kind. He could have just let the disciples freak out till they get to the other shore, you know. But he doesn't do that. He's so kind. And he's so condescending to we who have weak faith, right? 
he stands up and he's going to prove to the disciples that they really don't need to be afraid to the degree to which they are. He stands up in the boat and Matthew tells us that he rebukes the winds and the sea. Now the storm doesn't have a mind of its own, right? It's not outside of God's control or outside of God's sovereignty, but it's with the healings, Jesus demonstrates his authority through the word of his power as he speaks to the storm. Mark 4.39 tells us the actual words that Jesus speaks. Some of my favorite words in the Bible. Peace, be still. Peace, be still. Now we get wind here in Nevada. We're plagued by wind here in Nevada, right? Not a lot of rain. We don't have a lot of waves unless you're at Tahoe, but we get a lot of wind. Ladies, maybe, maybe you'll feel me on this one. You ever get so frustrated with the wind that you start talking to it or yelling at it, right? Or shaking your fist at it. Stop blowing! You ever been there before? Um, maybe that's just me, right? I don't really care so much about my hair, but there's other things, you know. You're outside playing ball or trying to fish, and the wind just messes that all up. If you were to do that, you start yelling at the wind, it would not listen to you. It would continue to blow. That's the extent of our power and authority over the wind. None. Right? And in fact, under normal circumstances, we would probably laugh at somebody standing in a boat yelling at the wind. Like, that guy's crazy. You know? But when Jesus does this, when Jesus rebukes the wind and the waves and commands them to be still and rage no more, when he says, peace, be still, something incredible happens. Matthew tells us there's no longer a great storm but at the end of verse 6, there is a great calm. A great calm. That contrast there. Instantly, the storm is quelled by the power of his word. Jesus' authority extends to nature as well. And the wind and the waves obey him as fully and promptly as the diseases and demons he dealt with back in Capernaum. Again, Jesus is so gracious to the disciples, right? And he, he's, he's not afraid to correct them a little bit and to say, hey, teaching moment here. But then he immediately gives them a great reason to trust him more. He gives them proof right there why they don't need to be afraid. That faith might be in the driver's seat instead of fear. Right? He shows them why they didn't need to panic in the first place. And the Lord does this in our lives too, doesn't he? When we start to panic, when we start to fear too much, it's, it's like we get this amnesia. It's like we get this spiritual amnesia. We instantly forget all the ways that God has demonstrated his power, his kindness, his provision for us. We get this, we get this kind of tunnel vision, right? That all we can see, all we can focus on is this problem right in front of us. And we forget everything else. But when we remember the character and works of God in Scripture and in our lives, that takes away fear's power. Because who does it ultimately put our focus on? Our problem or our God? Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that you read a couple Bible verses and I'm not afraid anymore, right? That's not, that's not how it works. But it is to say that the antidote to being controlled by fear is to meditate on our God, on his goodness, to think about the ways he's been faithful in the past, we see this all over the Psalms, right? All over the Psalms where the psalmist has this major problem he's got going on. And then he says, but you know what? I'm going to think about all the ways God's been good to me in the past, all the character attributes of God. I'm going to think about those things. And by the end of the psalm, the problem's still there. But the psalmist is now in a place of worship 
He's not controlled by faith anymore. And there's too many examples to look at on that today. But they're in there. Just read all, all the Psalms, you'll see them. We could say that our fear of our problem ends up being greater than our fear of our Savior in that moment, right? And that was part of the problem that the disciples had here. Let's look at the next verse, the last verse in our text, verse 27. Jesus demands great fear. Jesus speaks. The sea is turned to glass. The air is still. It is instantly quiet. Can you imagine what that would have been like for the disciples who were terrified out of their minds, tossed about in this boat, and in the blink of an eye, perfectly still? That must have been an absolute shock to them. Matthew tells us in verse 27 that the men marvel at what they've just seen. They're astonished. They're amazed. In fact, Mark tells us in Mark 4.31 that these men are not just astonished, but that they're filled with great fear. Right? The men are filled with great fear. Isn't that interesting? They were afraid of the storm. And now that they've watched Jesus calm the storm, they're not sitting in the boat completely at peace with the sense of calm, right? Oh, everything's good. Namaste, right? That's not where the disciples are at. They are filled with a great fear. They continue to be afraid. Their marveling is filled with fear. But the object and the nature of their fear has changed. We'll come back to that in a moment. But the disciples, they, they say to themselves, what sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? That's a great question. And I, I love here how Matthew uses a different word to describe the passengers of the boat in verse 27 than he has for the rest of the chapter. Uh, he's described them as disciples so far, but in verse 27, he calls them the men. In other words, human beings. Human beings. These human beings have just witnessed Jesus' authority, and they realize he's not in the same category as them. Right? These men are like, what kind of man is that? He does not fit with what we understand uh, regular humans to be. Right? He's not in the same category. He's genuinely human, but he is not merely human. Jesus has a different authority that the men in the boat do not have. He is different than them, different than any other human being, and they are not sure what to do with this. Right? They're not sure. Because the storms obey this man. The wind and the waves obey this man. These are all good Jewish boys here, and I suspect that there are Old Testament passages that they are starting to chew on and that are starting to come to mind. And they're starting to connect some dots here. Passages that describe the power of Israel's God over the storms, like Psalm 107. Turn there briefly with me. Psalm 107, starting in verse 23. Psalm 107. talking about the work of God with people in various times and various places. Here's what we read in verse 23. Some went down to the sea in ships doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end, and they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. 
It's the God of Israel who both raises the storm and puts it at peace. He has that power. We see Psalm 89, verses 8 through 9, describe God's power in a similar way. It says, O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you, you rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Psalm 65, verses 7 through 8. Psalm 65, verses 7 through 8. Describing God as the one who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the people, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe of your signs. You see, the wind and the waves and the disciples all heard not the voice of a man, but of their creator that day. They heard the voice of their God commanding his creation according to his will. Jesus doesn't say, Father, can you calm the storms? In the no, Jesus just speaks and it is done. The disciples, before they got into that boat, they did not recognize the authority and power and the deity of Christ. But boy, were their eyes open when he commanded the storm to be still. And you bet that strengthened their faith. As D.A. Carson says, faith urgently needs to know not so much what Jesus will do or what promises he might have made that are applicable to this or that situation, but faith urgently needs to know who Jesus is. That's really what we need to know, who Jesus is, the character of our God. And is it not the dawning realization of who Jesus is that causes the disciples to marvel in fear? What kind of man is this? Who is this man? That's the question that they're asking themselves. They're almost too incredulous to believe it. And it might be a couple more years before they really realize the fullness of who Jesus is. But they certainly realize he is not like them. And they fear him. They fear him. Isn't that interesting? They fear him. Jesus demands great fear. And it is actually that fear that strengthens their faith. Let's dig into this for a moment, right? Because we, we tend to view fear as an exclusively bad thing. But that's not the case, right? Um, there's different kinds of fear. <coughs> Michael Reeves helpfully breaks it down into three basic categories, right? There's natural fear. It's a natural response to danger. Think grizzly bear, right? Natural fear. That's a good thing that helps preserve our life. Don't touch the hot stove, right? Same kind of thing. There is a sinful fear, which is where we may tend to fear uh, man more than God, for example. We call that the fear of man. Now, there's a sinful fear where, where that, uh, that fear may completely ignore God and his providence, right? That is a sinful fear. But then there is godly fear, too. There is godly fear, too. Godly fear is not being terrified of God. Not being terrified of God. And it's not just being reverent of God, either. It's more than that. Nehemiah 1.11 actually describes how God's people should delight to fear God's name. We don't usually think of delight and fear in the same sentence, do we? But we are called to delight to fear God's name. Godly fear is a joyful awe and trembling at the goodness and power of God. 
more than just reverence. It's a joyful awe and trembling at the goodness and power of God. Uh, again, too often we place fear and love in contrast to each other, right? But when we were talking about right and godly fear of God, they're not separate, but they're actually intertwined. They're intertwined. Michael Reeves comments that the nature of the living God means that the fear which pleases him is not a groveling, shrinking fear. He is no tyrant. It is an ecstasy of love and joy that senses how overwhelmingly kind and magnificent, good and true God is, and therefore leans on him in staggered praise and faith. That is good and godly fear, without which we will never have strong faith. The disciples during the storm, they're somewhere in between natural fear and sinful fear, right? Somewhere in there. But they needed to move to godly fear because that is what Jesus demands simply because of who he is as God in the flesh. And God uses this storm to bring them to that place. If the disciples had stepped into that boat with a worshipful, joyful fear of their Savior, do you think the response of their hearts to the storm would have been different? I think so. Would they have had concern over the dangerous nature of the storm? I think so. Would they have still asked Jesus to save them? I think so. But would they have been reduced to a puddle of terror, panicking and, and having no thought to the power of their God? I don't think so. You see, faith and fear are not mutually exclusive, necessarily, right? But when we are fearing God rightly and above all else, not out of terror of Him, but out of love and awe at His greatness, then what will our mind be set on in those stormy moments, right? What are the eyes of our hearts going to be fixed on? They'll be fixed on God first, and then our concerning situation. But just think about how huge of a difference that might make, right? When we entrust ourselves to our Savior because we have a trusting fear of Him, because we see that His power is greater than whatever we might be going through. It's not to ignore the reality of a situation, but it is to have things in their proper order where God reigns. The disciples that went with Jesus across the Sea of Galilee were never promised an easy, easy path of discipleship. Right? Uh, they were never given a guarantee there'd be no trouble. But this storm was no accident. We saw from the Psalms that it is God who raises the storm. The storm on the Sea of Galilee that day was raised up and sent by the Holy Trinity to reveal the glory and authority of Christ, that the disciples might be taught more about who their master was. It was used to reveal to the disciples their own weak faith so that they could learn to trust and fear Christ more. Uh, this storm was not wasted, it was not accidental, but it was wisely intended and used by God. Now think about that. God not only allows difficult things in our life, but he purposefully intends them. That means God wastes nothing. He wastes nothing. But everything is within the safe bounds of his hand. And that is very difficult for us sometimes. We find ourselves relating to the disciples sometimes. But it is true. This text teaches us a number of things that we've talked about already, but it speaks to the anxious and fearful heart. 
that you might be going through a difficult time and a stormy trial, but the power of your Savior is greater than the power of the storm. It speaks to the unbelieving heart, a heart that does not know Christ. Look at what the disciples say to him. Save us, we are perishing. God may put a storm in your life to cause you to realize that your sin is causing you to perish as well, that you might cry out to Christ, the only Savior, save me. I am perishing. And he might give you the gift of eternal life. Our discipleship to Christ will probably not take us in a boat across Galilee, but like the disciples, we do face these storms as we follow Christ. They're not accidental, they're not coincidental, but they draw us closer to our Lord to show us our weakness that we might learn to trust and to fear Him above all else. He is the Lord of the storm. Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, how great and how mighty are Your works. Lord, our minds can hardly begin to comprehend them. But Lord, what is an anchor for us is the reality of who you are. Lord Jesus, we see your glory on display. We see your power and your authority on display. And Lord, as we sang this morning, the voice that stilled the waves and winds all those thousand years ago still speaks today. So, Lord, would you help us not to be overwhelmed by fear, but rather to fear you above all, not in terror, but, Lord, in in joyful awe of your greatness. And, Lord, may that keep our eyes so fixed upon you that, Lord, as we do face real challenges, real troubles, real sorrows and crises in our lives, that our eyes remain fixed upon you above all else. You are the object of our faith, Lord. May you also be the object of our right and godly fear. Help us, we pray, Lord. And we do thank you, Lord, for your kindness to weak faith, to people like us. Thank you for proving your faith, uh, your faithfulness and your power to the disciples that day. And help us to consider, Lord, the ways in which you've done so for us, that we might not forget your mighty works, but be reminded and encouraged by them day by day. Lord, we do thank you for all of these things. In your name we pray. Amen.